Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. I'm Raymond Okapil. And I'm Sophie Quamperens. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by Stoa alumni where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this podcast, we'll be discussing Anais Mitchell's hit musical, Town. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. You would not believe your eyes if 10 million fireflies lit up the world as I fell asleep. Cause they fill the open air and leave teardrops everywhere. You'd think me rude, but I would just stand and stare. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to our first episode of Unreliable Narrators. Um, yeah, so uh, let's start off by just talking about who we are and and what this podcast is about. So, as I mentioned, um, I am Raymond Docapil, and this is my co-host Sophie Clomparents. Hello. So this podcast is designed for people in competitive speech and debate. Both of us were in competitive speech and debate when we were in high school. It's true. And this is a particular event in the Christian Homeschool League called the Mars Hill Event. And the Mars Hill Event is designed to, uh, is based off of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, who preached a sermon to the people in the Roman community, uh, in the larger pagan community, and dis and use their culture in order to make a connection to the gospel and of Christ. So what we do in the Mars Hill event is we take relevant pieces of literature and media and the arts, and we talk about them and analyze them from a Christological point of view, and see how or if these works of art can reflect Christ's truth and the gospel. So the the pieces of art that we're going to be analyzing here are all taken from the Stoa Mars Hill list, which you can find online. Uh, I guess maybe we should put that in somewhere in the description somewhere. Or our so website. That, yes, we get or our one. website. It's going to be up there. Uh, so that you can, you can see some of the things that we're going to be drawing from. We'll be drawing from popular movies and musicals uh, and, uh, and, and, and songs and popular pieces of literature and so if you're interested in hearing us discuss a particular topic then you should let us know and we'll be happy to do that uh, so as I said I'm Raymond I was in speech and debate for five years I'm currently a coach uh, a speech and debate coach and I also teach a private I'm a private high school teacher in uh, in Tacoma Washington I teach uh, Covenant at Covenant High School I teach etymology, study skills, debate, and I am also the drama teacher there. So I like to think I'm doing all the things that I was still doing in competition. And on top of that, I'm also trying to run a podcast here. So let's see how that goes. <laughs> anyway, Sophie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so as previously mentioned, uh, I'm Sophie Glumperens. I also did speech and debate with the league stoa um i was a little bit after raymond's time so i sort of was coming in right as raymond was moving out um yep so i judged i judged you in a, in a round yeah once on it was a mars hill round actually that's how we met that's a, i was judging you in a mars hill round what did and i you did, talk about you did paper towns by john green did i really no no, 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 no. It was about something else, but then you connected it to Paper Towns. I do remember, because I loved the quote, you will go to the Paper Towns and you will never come back. And I yeah. connected it to lots of topics because I really liked it. I had forgotten yeah. that that's how we met. That's really fitting. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yes. And also, Sophie has a sister named uh, Trinity, who's a bit of a... She's like a wood nymph. We, we she She is evades our our sight constantly yeah she's mysterious legend has it that mm -hmm. she may just be a myth but 
Yep. But we've seen her per- personally firsthand. We have. Um, anyway, we know that she I exists. met. I I also met her judging her in a Mars Hill round. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we all became friends. Well, and I ranked I ranked Sophie first and Trinity fifth and below. So. <laughs> That's why I got to be on the podcast and Trinity didn't. (laughs) Yeah, that's how that's how she got on the podcast. (laughs) No, no, seriously though, Trinity, we did try to get Trinity on the podcast, and we will hopefully get her on the podcast at some point. Um, Yes, she just right now is is busy doing things like college. So uh, I am not in college. I just graduated this last May. Um, I got my degree in English literature and also i got a second major because i felt like it in latin um so i'm currently teaching lots of latin classes uh at a private high school and i'm also teaching a rhetoric class um so not quite doing the same sorts of things that i did in speech and debate except for the rhetoric part um when i was in speech and debate mars hill impromptu was sort of my main thing um I did a lot of things, but that was my favorite event. Um, And I did a lot of it. So it's cool to sort of circle back to my old stomping grounds and talk about a lot of the topics on this list. Um, I was also on the committee that didn't write this exact list, but wrote a couple of the lists in the years before. So several of these topics on this list um, are topics that I added Including the topic we're going to talk about. Um, I was the reason that we added Hazy's Town. So, yeah, great. Coming for a full circle, okay. we to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, hopefully, this, although this podcast is for students and parents who are currently in competition, we hope that it will be something that's interesting and, and, and edifying, hopefully, to people who are just interested in talking about art and music and and how that relates to to the gospel. So, our our first topic today, we're going to be talking about Hades Town, a Broadway musical by Anais Mitchell. Did I say that correctly? I've heard it Anais right. Mitchell, but I'm actually not sure whether it's Anais or Anais. Okay. Like Augustine and, and Augustine? Yeah, exactly. Which one are you? Uh, Augustine. Oh, I'm Augustine. Oh no, we can't do this podcast anymore. <laughs> okay, okay, so I'll call it Anais and you call it Anais then. Okay, I think sounds that good. Sounds, sounds good. All right, so uh, Sophie, tell us a little bit about Hades Town. What is this? What is this piece about? Sure. So originally, Hades Town was a concept album. Um, Anais Mitchell, Anais Mitchell, uh, she started writing <laughs> Hades Town when she was 23. Um, so she's very young and it took 15 years between when she first started writing Hades Town to when it finally debuted on Broadway. It went through a lot of revisions during that time. Um, lots of different table readings with lots of different actors and actresses who sort of floated in and out of playing those parts. Um, some of the actors and actresses have been with the musical for a very long time. For example, Amber Gray, who plays Persephone, has been Persephone for maybe something like 10 years now at this point. I don't remember how long it's been, but she has sort of followed Hades Town wow. from uh, place to place. She was in the off-Broadway live recording. She was in, she's in the cast recording. She's on Broadway playing Persephone right now. Um, she's been with it forever. Anyway, uh, so as a musical, it's gone through lots of revisions and originally was just supposed to be a jazzy concept album sort of going through the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, which is a Greek myth that I'll talk about more in a second, but it was going through that story and then eventually became sort of a full-fledged musical. And when Anais Mitchell was writing the musical, she had to keep sort of adding songs because she realized she really needed it to be a story and not just songs kind of surrounding a story. So that's how she wrote it. Um... It's based on two myths. The first myth, sort of the foreground myth, is that of Orpheus and Eurydice, and then there's kind of a background Hades and Persephone myth that's going on. So, in case you haven't heard the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, Orpheus is the son of a muse and the god Apollo. So, he's either a very minor god or a demigod. Uh, We're not 
completely clear on that, but right. he's divine in some way. Um, and the main way that that manifests itself is that he, his music is powerful. And when he sings or he plays the lyre, nature sort of stops to listen to him. He's able to charm creatures, birds and trees and animals, all that. Um, mm -hmm. He falls in love with a woman named Eurydice, who I believe is a nymph in the original story. Um, mm -hmm. She, they, they get married, uh, but then she steps on a snake. The snake bites her. She's poisoned and she dies. Orpheus is heartbroken, so he goes down into the underworld, down into hell, basically, to try and get Eurydice back. So he brings his lyre with him, and he sings to Cerberus, the three-headed dog, and gets into the underworld that way because Cerberus lets him through. Um, every obstacle that he comes to, basically, he, he sings, <laughs> he plays music, and they let him through. And finally, he gets to Hades and Persephone. Hades is the king of the underworld, and Persephone is his queen. Um, he sings to them, and there are a couple versions. One version is it moves Persephone. She's so moved by his song that she uh, asks Hades to let Eurydice go. And another version, Hades is himself moved. It's a little bit unclear what, what the original story would have been, but um, Hades agrees yeah. to let Eurydice go, and the condition is that she can only leave if she follows orpheus behind him and he can't turn around to look and check that she's still following him and mm -hmm. so he he walks out of the underworld she's following behind him he and it's a greek tragedy so we know <laughs> yes we know where it's this going is gonna go uh he makes it almost to the world above but then uh at the last second he doubts that she's actually following him or yeah that she's following him he can't hear her, so he, he turns around and checks at the last second, sees that she's there, but alas, he's broken the condition. She fades away and goes back to the underworld, and he returns to the world above. Um, so I, I uh, was just talking with a, a friend of mine from Romania. He says there's a saying in Romania called, and it goes, drowning the gypsy as it reaches the shore. Mm -hmm. And the saying is basically... <laughs> Oh, you were so close. You were, you spent this gypsy, spend all this time escaping from their country and swimming across the Pacific and, and you drown and you drown the gypsy just as it got there. So it was that, and that's kind of the, the, the way this ends here. It's, it just kills you because they were so close to living happily ever after just a few feet from, from getting out of the underworld. Right. Exactly. They almost make it, which is which is part of why the the story is effective and part of why it works I mean, even as a modern story is that they yeah. they almost there's so much work to get to the point where they almost make it and then they just don't, which is part of why right. I think and it's, it's part of also what makes it a tragedy. What makes a tragedy a tragedy is this sense of potential, like oh, it they could have they were so close, but they but they didn't make it right. Um, all right, so so this this is the first time I actually never heard about this musical till you mentioned it to me, and where you were telling me how great it was, and I listened to it. It was it was great. I also wasn't familiar with the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice until now, so I I did some <clears throat> some some last minute Wikipedia homework <laughs> on this. It was really interesting for me to just kind of compare how and how Anais Mitchell changed things because in some areas she was very faithful and in other areas areas she took some creative licenses um one of which is the kind of aesthetic makeup of the the musical in which a lot of it appears to be set in what looks like Great Depression America if we look at the sets and the the costumes at least some of the costumes it appears that these are the people in Hades Town are miners. The king of Hades is Mr. Hades. He's kind of like this businessman or CEO. And there's a lot built around uh, hard times and, econ and economic hardship, which ends up being a big theme in the story. Um, also, in the in the in the in Anais Mitchell's version. 
Eurydice, I don't think, is a wood nymph. She doesn't die. And when the story opens, they're, they don't meet in a... a I, they don't meet in the underworld. They meet in the, you know, above. But it's kind of in this strange dystopian setting. Uh, more more urbanized, I would say, than 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 meeting in the wood less less pastoral um so the road to hell the opening number opens with the words once upon a time there was a railroad line don't ask where brother don't ask when it was the road to hell it was hard times it was the world of gods and men so even though hermes tells us not to ask where or when the story happens the setting seems integral to the way Anais Mitchell recrafts the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. So, Sophie, my question to you is, how does this modernish setting affect the way we think about this very old story? I think there are a couple things. I think probably the main, the main important thing that it does, just in the context of modernizing the story or making it work in the context of a musical, is that it gives... Orpheus and Eurydice both conflict with one another, and it gives Eurydice an understandable motivation for making a character choice, which is to go to Hades Town. Um, so in the original, obviously, Eurydice steps on a snake and is bitten. She and Orpheus are very happily married. There's not really conflict between them. Um, she just tragically dies, and it's, it's senseless that she does. There's no reason mm -hmm. for it. Um, it's just mm -hmm. an accident that she steps on a snake and she, she dies. But in the musical, the fact that they're in economic hard times makes Eurydice's character different and a lot more interesting. Because when you first see Eurydice, the first description of her is that Eurydice is a hungry young girl. Um, mm -hmm. That she's very concerned with survival, that she doesn't want to be poor, um... Or even if it's not so much that she doesn't want to be poor, she wants to be warm and to have enough to eat and be sheltered. And that's basically all she wants. That's all she's looking for. And she's been on her own her entire life just trying to scavenge and find those things, which are hard to find because of the setting, because of the fact that it's Great Depression, kind of Dust Bowl era, that sort of circumstance. Um, right, right. So... So the next question then is, is the setting important? Uh, because Hermes begins the musical by asking us not to think about it. He says, don't ask where, brother, don't ask when. So why, why is he asking us that? Right. So that sort of lends itself. The, the setting of the musical assumes, it, it kind of asks you to assume that this is Great Depression era united states but also the greek gods are there but also it doesn't yeah uh the greek gods are there as if they're just the normal greek gods and they're still hanging out um and there aren't really discernible lyrics or parts of the poetry that ask us to that that assume that this is the united states it really could be anywhere where there's an economic depression or any time. So that kind of makes it, you know, that's sort of different, I think, uh, from a lot of, of, of modern interpretations of ancient stories or historical stories. When they try to take a, a historical spin on it, uh, they often say, well, here's, a, here's an actual, here's an equivalent, right? So if Hermes would, would lived in the modern day, he would have been a milkman or something. Right. Uh, right. I think there was a musical or uh, an example you had that was that fell in that line. What what was the play you were right. talking about? Right. Percy Jackson. This isn't Percy Jackson. Right. Right. Yeah. So what's the what what's the what's Percy Jackson doing that's different from this? Yeah. So Percy Jackson, the idea is the gods and goddesses of Greece and Rome are real. They were real then they just change with the times. And so you have things right. like you're talking about where, you know, maybe Hermes is a delivery driver now or uh, Athena runs an owlery. I don't know. I, I can't remember what they actually do <laughs> in Percy Jackson, but um, that they somehow change with the times. 
Whereas Hades Town really makes the story timeless. You almost can't tell what time it's in because you could sort of transplant it to any time and it works. The story works and the Greek gods and goddesses don't change because in a way they're archetypes. <laughs> and it also, mm -hmm. the story is cyclical and that's a big theme of the musical is that this is an old story, but we sing it anyway. And we sing it mm -hmm. again and again and again because this story just keeps happening. And the fact that it happened in ancient Greece doesn't mean it doesn't happen now and that it will happen in the future. It's also different from like the way Marvel uses the Greek mythology with Thor and Loki too. I mean, in some sense it's the same, um, but it's not exactly the same because in the Marvel universe, it's the Greek gods are real. They still exist. So that's like Percy Jackson. They interact with the real world, but in the Marvel movies, uh, they are, there's, there's, it's a continuation of the saga. It's right. new events are, are unfolding with the additional interaction with the modern world. So these gods and goddesses are interacting with the modern world and, and coming up with new problems that they didn't have before. And also Thor and Loki increasingly become more like characters and cartoon characters, especially Thor becomes much more like a, a buffoon um, and he's not exactly godlike, or his godlike deity, his his godlike features become more like PowerPoints in a video game, right? Not so much uh, like a. You don't really think of him as a as a Greek god. You think of him just as Chris Hemsworth, right? Um, but what's happening here, right? And I think you might have talked about this a little bit is that it's the same old story and except it just keeps on happening. It's the seasons. It's the story of the seasons and it's right. cyclical in its nature. And these gods, um, they rehearse the story. And so in that sense, it's kind of like a dream. They're kind of these strange spiritual entities that exist and, and uh, accelerate the forces of nature, which are, which are cruel and harsh and serve it as, as an explanation for those forces. Right. Well, also, I think it's really interesting that Aeneas Mitchell, in a culture that is very focused on telling new stories, um, novelty is valued a lot in mm -hmm. the artistic climate that we're in. She's adamant mm -hmm. that this is an old song, that this right. isn't, there's nothing new about this story. And she's doing new things with it. But she yeah. isn't even asking you to think of this as original. In fact, it's really important that you understand that it's not. That's integral to the yeah. theme. She, she's kind of underscoring the point that even now, you know, in Great Depression America, uh, the same thing is happening. And that's part of her point. The same thing is happening that was happening, you know, thousands of years ago with the, with the Greek myth. And these gods and goddesses are still doing their thing. Yep. Still at it. All right. Yeah, yes, they're still at it. They still got it. They're still kicking. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about some of the the lyrics and uh, and the and the the artistic and the uh, quality and aesthetics of this. Um, I, for one, was incredibly impressed with this cast. Mm -hmm. I think broad, Broadway Broadway actors are seriously underrated, and you know, I mean, I think that tells you a lot about how theater has evolved since since Broadway was at its height. Almost all actors previously, they used to be uh, trained in musicals and Broadway theater. So you got like, Hugh Jackman is kind of an icon of the past. He's a bit of a dinosaur in the sense that his first role, I think, was, was Beauty and the Beast. That was, and so that's why he was one of the, you know, the, the few people in Lame as Rob who could really sing. Mm -hmm. when they made it into a musical, whereas Russell Crowe, I mean, he wasn't trained in that at all. And a lot of, <laughs> and so there was a big, there's been kind of a, a, a Broadway revival in the, the in, in Hollywood with Into the Woods, Les Miserables, um, and La La Land. But the problem with it is that none of these actors were actually trained in Broadway mm -hmm. uh, the way that a lot of these older actors were. So, um, but I think that it's absolutely essential. I mean, these are 
these these are these, this is where real the real talent is. I think you know this like who is the who is the girl? What's her name? Um, who plays Eurydice? Eva Noblezada. Eva no no Noblezada. Oh my gosh, she blew me away. She's like, incredible. She she's in a class in, of her own, and I'm not a connoisseur of broad of Broadway, but you know I watched some clips of her her performance in Miss Saigon, and it was just bone chilling. Her her passion and and her voice are, are really. She was she was somewhere else. Yeah. When she was playing those roles. Well, also, um, Patrick Page, who plays Hades. Um, oh yes, can we talk about Patrick Patrick Page? He's so good, and I love his voice so much. The story is that uh, the part of Hades is written in such a way that it could be played by a tenor who's singing two octaves up from where Patrick Page sings, or a baritone who's singing one octave up from where Patrick Page sings. And obviously, uh, Hades can be played as a bass. Um, And originally, the script doesn't call for any one of those. Hades could be any one of those parts. And actually, the part of Hades, in the 15 years that Hades Town has been sort of evolving, Hades has been played by a tenor and has been played by a baritone. But then, when they were doing the casting call, I think for the for the live recording for the off-Broadway cast, Patrick Page walked into audition and said, hey, I, I hear that you're maybe looking for a true bass. Do you want to hear how it sounds? And they said, sure. And he sang the part as a baritone, and then he took it down an octave and sang it as a bass. And they went with that. Hey, little songbird. Give me a song. I'm a busy man, and I can't stay long. I got clients to call. I got orders to fill. Yeah, it was a it was really really interesting how every single one of those characters just has such a distinct voice, especially since you know I was just listening to it. So in the new in the new version in Anais Mitchell's version, Eurydice actually chooses to go to Hades Town. So it changes. It's not really up to fate, so to speak. Right, it is traced back to a moral choice, and also a lot of other things are turned into moral choices. For example, I think there's actually a version of the Greek myth where, um, when, when, when Orpheus is about to come out of, of, of uh, uh, the underworld, he, he comes out of the underworld, and in rejoicing. He actually escapes, and rejoicing, he turns around, and Eurydice is just a few feet behind him, and she's still in darkness. And so, it, and so, it, it's a misunderstanding or an accident which sends her back. Uh, but Anais Mitchell didn't go and go that direction. She made a lot of the tragic circumstances here due to individual choices. First of all, I think it's a choice. Just purely artistically, I think it appeals more to modern sensibilities to have it be a character choice than to have it be kind of a tragic accident. Um, And it definitely takes the myth in a different direction. I think it does something different than the original myth maybe intends to do. Um, Because part of what it does is it gives Orpheus some hand in the tragedy that's not simply his turning around. Um, There's this idea that he neglects Eurydice in some way or... At least, if not neglects her, he fails to give her reason to have have faith in him. Um, the whole idea is that he, his way of fixing the world or of making things better is not to play the game of uh, pragmatism. It's not to gather firewood and find food and just survive the storm. His goal, what he wants to do, is take what's broken and make it whole. He wants to fix the world instead of just survive in it. Um, But in doing that, when he goes and he kind of retreats and works on his song and gets kind of lost in that, he somehow leaves Eurydice behind. Um, Which makes the whole situation more complicated, right? Because Eurydice wants to survive, and her whole life she's been poor and 
cold. So that's not, I mean, that's that's in, in Mitchell's version. That's not the original. Right. She was just like a, a wandering wood nymph. But here she's she's in a different situation. Yeah, she needs something. And she's, and she's mortal in this version, which I think is also important, that she's vulnerable in a way that Orpheus really isn't. Because Orpheus is divine in some way and is able to take care of himself um, because he's divine. Because he doesn't, at any point in the story, ever appear to need anything. Um, even in the midst of the storm, when the storm comes in. And so, you relate to, or at least are sympathetic to, Eurydice in wanting to leave. It makes, it makes her decision to go to Hades Town as sympathetic as humanly possible, because... Well, Eurydice kind of ends up being a little bit more of the, 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 the center of, the emotional center of the story. Right. I mean, Orpheus drives it. I mean, honestly, I think, you know, Orpheus is kind of like this oblivious dreamboat, I think. Yeah, and yeah. This, like, what was he? He, he, he? He's like, how did you get in? And he's like, oh, I just sang and the stones flew out of the stones way. I don't know how it happened. Stones left and they let me in. <laughs> yeah. So it's like stuff just works out for him. You know, right. he's, uh, and he's kind of this, this uh, dream, dream boy. Well, and actually, that's interesting. Everyone loves him, but... <laughs> He this doesn't is, really know what's going on. <laughs> this is a side note, but apparently in the original, the character evolved a lot, and in some of the original versions of Hades Town, he was sort of a James Dean kind of smooth-talking, less less of a dreamy kind of oblivious person, and more just kind of careless. Um, uh-huh. Which I think the the change is good. I think it makes him more sympathetic, which is really important to the story. Right. I mean, he's, I mean, he definitely embodies idealism here. He's, he's the romantic. Right. Uh, which, which Eurydice is fine. It's frustrating, but she's also drawn to it at the same time. Yeah. Right. So there's the, so what, what is, do you, what is this, this conflict between Orpheus and Eurydice? I mean, we talked about it being idealism versus pragmatism, um, is there really a conflict here, or do they do they really want the same thing? I don't know. I I mean, I think they do sort of want the same thing. They just have very different ways of getting there. Um, which, again, is maybe Orpheus's main fault is not drawing Eurydice into his way of interacting with the problems of the world, which is... To write a song. <laughs> that's his way. And she, she sees that that's right. effective because he sings the song for her the first time and she says, it can do all that, then you have to finish it. But mm-hmm. because she really isn't part of it, it's really hard for her to have faith in it. Um, right. Well, he is actually, in some sense, it may be due to the result that he actually can't really empathize with her situation being the literal son of a god and or a demigod, right? Right. He, he's, he's really been raised on the bed of luxury, you know, the prince, he's the ultimate prince, so. Which, which I think is exemplified in the fact that in the wedding song toward the beginning, she keeps asking, um, monetarily, how are all these things going to happen? Who's going to buy the wedding band? Who's going to make the wedding bed? Who's going to lay the wedding table? She's wondering how to pay for a wedding, which are very... Yeah, how are you going to... Practical like this is concerns. All, you're really, you're really cute, but how much money do you have? And do you have a job? Right. And then his That's answer to every wondering. single thing, he doesn't say anything about money. He doesn't answer any of it. Yeah. He just says, he says, he makes puns. He says, uh, I'm going to sing every single time. It's I'm going to sing. And for the wedding band, no, no, for, I think it's for, um, maybe it is for the wedding band. He says the river is going to break its bank for us. Which doesn't make any sense. It's just poetry. It's just words. Um, yeah. But she's convinced by it somehow, which I think says something about her, that she really, she wants to believe that. She wants to be taken care of, and she really wants to believe that money isn't the problem. It isn't really the thing that they need. Yes, and also, okay, so that kind of leads us to Hades, because it seems that there is almost, I don't I don't know if I want to say love triangle, but there is some kind of suggestion of that. There's definitely that, a suggestion of sexual exploitation that isn't explicit, but pl- it plays a yes. lot into the whole idea of Great Depression, factory workers, even miners, that sort of thing. 
Right. Well, I mean, Eurydice seems to be torn between what Orpheus can offer and what Hades can offer, and what Hades can off- offers is is security, economic and financial security right. in the underworld, because his world is a world of miners, and these miners, well, at least, you know, the Great Depression era, that was, that was uh, a pretty solid path to at least getting some way of surviving and, and getting some food, so that becomes a symbol of economic security. Um, and that kind of ties in a lot to, 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 to the, to the human curse that we're, that we're dealing with, you know, the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, we can go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden because, you know, the, the nature, the tree huggers and the nature lovers would say, well, why can't we just be nudists and live out in the, in the woods and mm-hmm. get away from civilization and everything and grow our hair out and, and have chest hair and armpit hair and, uh, <laughs> you know, be natural. Just uh, get away from technology. And it's like, yeah, sure, you can empathize with that, that urge or that feeling to do so. But the fact is, is that nature is fallen. Uh, spiders, female spiders eat their husbands and wolves eat their children. Um, <laughs> it's Tennyson's world of nature raving and raving in tooth and claw, right? Like, that's also a reality of nature. And it's it's not something that you want to idealize, um, which I think that sometimes we often do. I think the uh, the environmentalist narrative kind of gravitates towards an idealization of nature. Right. Uh, but it's not like the the current system of uh, uh, industrial system is is below criticism by any stretch of the imagination so we have that conflict here you know this 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 reality this this unavoidable reality which permeates our our modern life that this and that the industrial the results of the industrial revolution and modernity is cutting us off from some more vital and pure life something more real and tangible it it cuts us off from meaning and from the seasons and from rhythm and from connecting with with the cosmos and with the divine and with the transit trans transcended technology gets in the way of all of that um you know right. there's been so much discussion about how phones pr- prevent actual real human connection uh but then we go back to Genesis and we know that like, you know, there was a time when nature was unfallen. There was a time when we could live in that way. But what the story of Genesis tells us is that we fell and now there's a curse. And the curse is for man, in toil you shall labor of the earth, you know, all the days of your life. You have to toil to make the earth yield fruit to you. And so that toil is, civilization is a result of that toil. Is the thing that we build on top of nature, the concrete that we pour over the woods and, and the rivers and, and, and the forests, right. in order to account for the reality of the fallenness of our nature. So it seems that like Hades and Persephone, I mean, uh, in some sense, Orpheus's call to go back to nature, his idealism, I think that's part of why it makes him a little bit of a dreamboat, a little bit of an unrealistic person. And mm-hmm. why you kind of look at him like, oh, you're kind of silly because we can't, we can't, even though we, we love that, we would like that, we, we can't actually go back to the Garden of Eden. Well, also, weirdly enough, Hades kind of does the same thing in the sense that he, at least in the beginning when he's honestly seducing Eurydice, yeah. He also romanticizes industrialization or that life because he um so in the relationship between Orpheus and Eurydice, Orpheus is the singer, right? He's the musician, he's the songbird for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um and he's sort of taken care of by Eurydice because she's the one who's gathering food and firewood and trying to yeah. keep them alive. Um and that when Hades seduces Eurydice, he talk he calls her a songbird, 
and she's not she's not the musician in her relationship mm-hmm. with Orpheus. Orpheus is the one who's being taken care of, and so in a way, what he's offering her is the the opportunity to be in the position that Orpheus is to her, to be taken care of by someone else, and to have economic right. security, and to be what he is, which is the songbird. Um, well, yeah, it maybe can be like she can have the best of both world, worlds. Maybe that's part of what he's offering there. Right. Yeah. And that he he paints that in one way. It's sort of a Garden of Eden. Uh, you won't surely die. Com- well, it's a it's a Garden of Eden compromise. Yeah. You know, um, which is kind of like the quandary, the position uh, of the artist in, in the world, you know, of like, you know, the typical starving artist. Mm hmm is always having, you know, is always, you know, a lot of the popular things, you know, of artists in in Hollywood talking about how, oh, my parents never wanted me to do this, you know, how are you going to make a living and that sort of thing. But I went and I followed my dream anyway, um, which is true for a very small minority of people and not true for a lot of artists who are just not able to to make a living being an artist. And so... There is that kind of compromise which many artists aren't willing to do, and that is, you know, find a way to do your stuff on the side, mm-hmm. you know, do what you love on the side, and in the meantime, you gotta wade tables or be a delivery boy or, or something like that. Right. I also, I, I think that brings us not just to Hades, but to Hades and Persephone. Um, yeah. Because we haven't yeah. talked about Persephone at all, but she is very unhappy in Hades town and very unhappy with Hades and is uh wants to be in the summertime and with people in the upper world and hates it when she has to go back to Hades town um but the the twist on the Hades Persephone relationship that's here that isn't necessarily in the original myth um I don't think it's really commented on very much in the original myth is that there's the implication that they were happy, that Hades really did love Persephone, and that he still There's does. an allusion to the time of yore. Yeah. Some way back when. Yeah. Which, going back to the idea that the story is cyclical, implies that there was a time when this wasn't the cycle, that right. they were happy together. And there that there's was peace a suggestion that that's going to happen again, or could happen again. It just isn't that it's right now. It's like the seasons; it just goes in cycles. But that it wouldn't necessarily have to. There is there there is that kind of as Christians, there is that sort of reality that we have to wrestle with. I mean, Paul says that that nature groans. I mean, talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God, and through for since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen. Yet in the same token, he also says, for since the creation of the world, uh, the, uh, the creation has been subjected to futility and it groans with the pangs of childbirth. Right. Um, so there are, is that, that reality of, of the cruelty of winter and, and the cruelty of nature that doesn't seem to, you know, even if you were a creationist, I don't like to call myself a creationist. (laughs) Um, but I think, you know, a lot of the creationists argument is like, Look at all the beauty in the world. And, of course, it has to be, there has to be a divine or intelligent creator. Um, but then the evolutionists or the atheists can, can take the same thing and turn, around, turn it around and, like, look at the fierceness of the universe. Look at the cruelty of, of nature. Look at the randomness of it. Look at, look at chaos theory. Um, and then you can use that as evidence to make the opposite argument. And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice of... Uh, as Christians, if we look at the creation as an un, as an unfallen place, right? It's like it is. It is. Uh, it is. There is something wrong with it, um, and the thing that's wrong with it is, in fact, cyclical. It it happens in seasons, and it and it happens over and over again. So this thing that we're used to is um, is perennial. And I, that kind of leads into what leads into to Eastern philosophies, ultimately, mm-hmm. is, well, we can't do anything about it, so maybe the bad isn't really evil. Uh, maybe it's just a flip side of the good, and they're necessary to bring balance 
mm-hmm. like yin and yang. Um, and, you know, outside of of what we understand in, in the Christian fr- framework, like, that is a way to account for this, for for the realities of, of the fallenness of nature. I mean, like, you've got to come up with an explanation for it somehow. Right. Well, I think there's even a suggestion of that, of the, that parallel, or parallels in general, or of the cycles, cycle and parallels together. Um, in the fact that Hades and Orpheus look really, really different, but there are Mm -hmm. really shocking parallels between them, and maybe even a suggestion that Hades is just older Orpheus, because... Hmm. I did not not pick up on that. Okay, well, (laughs) this will be new for you then. Um, Because Orpheus seems to be the only character who actually understands Hades, including, like, Hades' wife, Persephone doesn't really seem to understand him. But Orpheus, before he even meets Hades, is writing the song that is about Hades. Um, And the song that he's writing about Hades is both empathetic to Hades and understands why he does what he does. And the reason is fear. Um, And actually in the original, I think it's in Epic 2, which means it's the second version of the song that Orpheus is trying to write about Hades. He says that the reason Hades does what he does and the reason he is the way that he is is that he's thinking about his wife in the arms of the sun and that he's filled with doubt that she'll ever come back. So he understands the idea of being filled with doubt that this person you love is going to follow you or come with you someplace that is cold and dark. And then in the end, uh, Orpheus has to trust that Eurydice is going to follow him back into the cold and dark. And the flip side happens where Hades sings his Kiss the Riot, where he comes up with the plan. And the reason he has the plan, the reason he has that particular condition, is that he, on the flip side, also understands Orpheus. Um, And he says, nothing makes a man so bold as a woman's smile and a hand to hold. Because Mm -hmm. Hades knows what that's like. Um... And he knows that doubt comes in, in that sort of situation, because that's what he goes through every single year with Persephone Mm -hmm. back in the sun and knowing that she has to come back to him and that she has to choose to come back to him. Um, So in terms of that idea of, of Eastern philosophy and maybe the idea is that the, the winter is just, inverse of the summer and that evil is just the inverse yeah. of good that they're really sort of in some sense maybe the same sort of character there's just a lot of years between them and a different sort of life circumstance so when we're talking about where are the christian truths in this piece which obviously both is a really old ancient greek myth and a more modern retelling of it um i think probably mm-hmm. the most important question is can we find a Christological figure in this story. Um, more specifically, Orpheus makes a descent into Hades Town, which is pretty explicitly hell. And he goes yeah. down there, and he there's even a a rising up of the miners um, when he goes down yeah. there, and he he sort of sings and inspires all of them, and they stand with Orpheus, and that is sort of the beginning of what convinces Hades to grant an audience. <laughs> to Orpheus, which he wasn't going to before. Um, and we could see that descent and that, that experience as sort of a harrowing of hell. Um, but if, if we do think about it that way, if we do think of that as a harrowing of hell, and if we think of Orpheus as a Christological figure, what are we supposed to think of the fact that he, that he doesn't make it, that he fails, right. that he doesn't yeah. rescue Eurydice? Well, so so uh, in case our viewers are unfamiliar with that term, what is the harrowing of hell? Um, the So that would be the... Christian idea of Christ when he is crucified on the cross and during the three days when he is in the tomb, um, that he descends into hell and breaks the gates Mm -hmm. of hell and rescues the Christians or those who have faith who died before his death. Yeah. So that's, that's, 
that's an interesting thing when we're when we're juxtaposing those things because definitely the similarities are really there. There's a there's a movement of descent into the underworld, into death, and and to ri- and rising up again. Um, I think it's important to point out that it's not entirely clear that the underworld, uh, uh, the underworld, did they just call it the underworld? Um, yeah. In the the underworld in or uh, Hades in Greek mythology and and Elysium are not necessarily equivalent to heaven and hell. And but I think that the modern retelling definitely understands hell. I mean in, in some sense it's I don't know whether it's conscious or unconsciously Christianized, but the idea of hell is something that emerged from Christianity. It is something and, and, and separately from, from the idea of the underworld in Greek mythology. Um, but both of them are concepts of the, of the afterlife. But hell is definitely uh, more, more constituted in the Christian sense as being cut off from God. That's, that's the fundamental thing about hell. Whereas the characteristics of the underworld are, are a little bit more vague right there's mm-hmm. there's not this idea of claiming of ownership um of an ultimate good creator who's who's in charge of this thing like it's like you said it's just forces of nature that seem to be realities that the greeks were somehow able to observe and pick up on um but like you said so to go to your to your question though your question is Okay, if there is a Christ figure here, and Orpheus is supposed to be a Christ figure, what does it mean, the fact that he doesn't get out? Um, so again, we want to like actually point out the fact that this is not supposed to be a, a, like a, a, a Christian story. I mean, it's a Greek myth. It happened before the time of Christ, right? Um, but it's interesting that it follows that pattern, but with the exception that it, that it doesn't end happily. Um, so, I guess before I ask, answer that question, we have to ask the question, answer that question with a question, and that question is: Was Hades justified in his in what he did? Um, because so Orpheus sings this song, and everyone's moved by it, and Hades decides, well, I can't, I can't let them out. Um, well, I, I have to decide between keeping them and letting them out. He says, well, if I kill him, then I make a martyr out of him. I have the, the crowds not on my side. Whereas, but if I let him go, then I'll lose my respect as king. So he says, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. Um, he consults the fates and the fates say, men are fools, men are frail, give them a rope and they'll hang themselves. So Hades says, okay, well, I'll just let them out and I'll give them the instruction to that he, he can't look behind him. And by doing that, I capitalize on human fear and I know how afraid he's going to be because this is my kingdom and I, and I know what it's like. And so he basically puts him in a situation. He plays an impossible game. He puts him in a situation where it's impossible for him to win. Um, and in that sense, he gets to be the benevolent king but also keeps keeps uh, uh, Eurydice for his own. He also keeps order. Yeah, he keeps order. So what do we think about Hades' decision here? As in, is he, is he justified? Is he justified? I mean, yeah. Like, for me, it's like, there's part of me almost like liked Hades. You know, I almost sympathize with him. It's like, wow, this seems like kind of reasonable to me, all the stuff that you're saying here. He's very internally you know? consistent. Even if you disagree, Very, yeah. he's internally consistent. Right. So, I mean, I would argue that in this sense, Hades was Hades was justified in the decisions that he made because it was Orpheus that invaded his realm, not the other way around. Orpheus came into the underworld, and he's king of the underworld. It's his realm, it's his property. And in that sense, he has every right to claim Eurydice for his own. Um, she chose that path. She she joined it, and so she's put in debt to to Hades, lifelong debt to Hades. It's it's you know, and so 
it's really just a sense of sympathy for for Orpheus that would make Hades even consider the possibility of letting them free. So he releases them knowing that in his domain the outcomes of the outcome of the attempt to escape will be ultimately futile. And to me that I think this actually makes me think of of Lord of the Rings. Um because you know the ending of Lord of the Rings, nobody actually ends up being heroic. Uh Frodo takes his task to the end of Mount Doom. He sacrifices he sacrifices his life or the hope of his life in order to accomplish his task. He's standing in the pit of hell and he morally fails. He morally fails because he chooses to get the ring from from himself. And in the movie they make it like he actually did something sort of like a heroic struggle, but he actually doesn't. He just simply decides he's going to take it for himself. And then Smeagol steals it and then by accident falls into Mount Doom. So a lot of interpretations, because Tolkien was coming from a Christian perspective, it says this is the action of grace. The action of grace which turns the events around unexpectedly. Um, but part of what he wanted to point out there is the fact that um, every character in this series fails morally. There isn't actually a hero who makes the right choice in the end. But good still triumphs nonetheless. And something that is the characteristic of a Greek myth is that nobody uh succeeds morally. Right. Um especially in this in this version of the story. And so what Hades is doing is he's putting them in a situation which is really the natural situation of us in the world with our human condition um knowing the fact that we're in debt and we can't save ourselves. He gives them the option to attempt to save himself, save themselves, um, um, with that little classic fairy tale caveat, right? There's this one thing that you can't do, you know, uh, like the the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And mm-hmm. that's the law. That's the one thing that you can't do. And we know, as it is for every single myth and every single story, that is the one thing that they're going to do. Um, so. I think that the biblical application of this is that it really goes back to to the law and it points us to Christ because it shows us that Christ was the only person who could really harrow hell. Um you you Orpheus attempts to harrow hell. It's a failed attempt to harrow hell, I would say. Um as there were many attempts to harrow hell um which were not successful. Christ was the only one who could only, who could be who could abide by the law perfectly and not look back. You know, if he was in that situation. Right. So, a scriptural application of this, I thought of the apostle Paul um when he talked about how the law actually creates sin. So, it was the fact, it was that reverse psychology. It's like don't look at the cookie jar. That's going to make you think about the cookies all the more. Don't think of pink elephants, you're going to think of pink pink elephants. Right. It's like any kind of forbidding is going to make us do it. I mean it's and so that's what the law does when God tells us right or wrong, you know, and we and we're faced with that choice, we are going to fail. Um so Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, so you can think about how Hades is capitalizing on how men are fools and men are frail. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of her body to bear fruit for death. And then later in verse 9, I once I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. There's even a quote that in the song The Chips Are Down where the hey the the muses directly quote jesus well indirectly quote jesus when they say the first shall be first and the last shall be last and this of course is an inverted parody of jesus's words the last shall be first and the first shall be last the full quote goes first the first shall be first the last shall be last cast your eyes to heaven you get a knife in the back nobody's righteous nobody's proud nobody's innocent 
now that the chips are down. This is a great example of how Hades' world is the world of the law. It's the exact opposite of the message that Jesus brought when he came to earth and preached a message of grace. He was bringing the opposite and saying, no, this is not about merit. Um, this is not about somebody, about whoever whoever was the most moral gets into heaven. He turns it around and says that the last shall be first. And, and of course, that's not, that's not uh, justice, we would say, in the traditional sense of the word. But to quote uh, C.S. Lewis from Till We Have Faces, are the gods not just? To which the other character replies, oh no, child, what would become of us if they were? It's ultimately a story of failure because it's a story of Hades, who is the law, imposing the law, and our protagonist failing in keeping it. So then, the last question then is, is there actually hope? You know, does this actually lead us to hope? The original last words of the Hades Town finale were, it's a love song for anyone who tries. But in the final version, Hermes now ends the musical by singing, we're going to sing it again. So what is the point of framing the musical in terms of recognizing the story as a tragedy, but singing it anyway, knowing how it ends? Why change the last words? Uh, so I think the, that ending is really important. Um, first of all, the fact that we start by saying the, the original last words, it's a love song for anyone who tries, is that's a really hopeless ending, or just leaves with a really hopeless mindset, because the idea there, like the thought that you're being left with is, it's a love song for anyone who tries, implying that it's just everyone, that you are bound to fail, that you actually can't make it out of Hades Town, but you can try, and that's actually the best that you can possibly do. Um, it's almost nihilist in nature, whereas mm -hmm. the final version saying we're going to sing it again, um, which is just a reframing of the original, but we sing it anyway, is significantly right. more hopeful. And I think that's probably why it got changed, um, because that ending is more hopeful. Right. Well, but we sing it anyway is almost like a stoic mindset. Like right. Here's the fact, we're going to die, uh, but the best thing that we can do is just kind of face it with fortitude. Right, right. And then instead of even ending with that, instead of ending with we sing it anyway, we just say, we're going to sing it again, which is just a statement of fact, right? It's just, this is an old story, we are going to sing it again, we always do. Yeah, I saw something, I kind of, there's something like that that's alluded to in a conversation between Hades and Persephone, is that right? Yes, yes, exactly. That earlier, uh, Hades, so at the beginning of the reprise of Wait For Me, when Hades says, um, no, Persephone is talking about how Hades let them go, and Hades says, I let them try. And then Persephone says, how about you and I, are we going to try again? And he says, it's time for spring, we'll try again next fall. And she says, wait for me. And he says, I will. Um, and that there's that little bit of hope that their relationship, it may take a long time, but that that cycle is not going to go on forever. And there's even a little yeah. bit of hope that Eurydice is maybe going to change things for the miners down in Hadestown. Because during the finale, there's this moment where while Hermes is singing and the music is sort of starting to swell and sound a little bit more hopeful... You hear her mm -hmm. back in Hadestown saying, anybody, anybody got a match? The idea being that she's going to make it brighter, that she's going to do something. She's going to there. create some light. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is really important in a story where the whole time you've been hearing this is cyclical, that it's an old song, but we're, we're going to sing it again, yeah. or we're going to sing it anyway, um, that the song doesn't change, that the story of Orpheus and Eurydice doesn't change, but that it's maybe a foreshadow or, or a foretaste of the story that, that does change, that tells the same story, but makes it right. Uh, or in the words well, of Orpheus... Well, it tells the same story, but now there's a new element in it. Now there's an element of victory in it. Right. Right? Right. That so actually does what Orpheus tries to do, because Orpheus says, I'm going to make a song that uh, 
takes what's broken, makes it whole, and fixes what's right. wrong. Um, yeah. And and like a cycle, we have indeed come full circle. I right. Think, <laughs> by tying this back to the beginning. Yes. All right. So, do you have any uh, closing thoughts for us? The one last thought that I have is because Eurydice really ends the story in hell, and there are all these miners in hell. The hope that you have, maybe, possibly, of the one one day the story being retold in a way that breaks the cycle, is this idea that maybe these miners and maybe Eurydice one day are going to emerge out of hell, which gives us this mm-hmm. idea of resurrection, or the resurrection of the body, that these people aren't in hell forever, that even though they're shades, they could come back to life. Um, which reminds me of First Corinthians in chapter 15 when it says for since death came through a man the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man that if death for Eurydice came both from her own choice to take the ticket and to go to Hades town and yeah. also from from Orpheus's failure to save her the right. hope is who that wasn't this... strictly speaking a man right right <laughs> the god man uh, that one yeah. day her resurrection or the resurrection of the dead in Hades town might also come through another God man. Right. Well, I mean, Christ was fully God and fully man, but that's not exactly the character of Orpheus. Right. You know, he is, he doesn't have that dual nature of, of being both of those things. Yep. Which I think is essential to, to the study of Christology. Okay. Well, that looks like I think that that wraps up the discussion for today. So uh, thank you for, for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our podcast. See you next time. See you next time. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com and let us know what piece on the Mars Hill list you would like to hear discussed next. That's unreliablenarratorsstoa, S-T-O-A, at gmail.com. Until then, friends, if you come across a beautiful wood nymph in the forest, make sure you have a job.